Welcome to the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast, where we talk to computer scientists who immigrated from their home countries for study or for work or for other reasons. In these oral history interviews, you will find established and renowned computer scientists from across academia and industry narrating their experiences of immigrating from where they grew up to a completely different land, often the US. My name is Indy Gupta, and I'm your host. This is a remix episode. As usual, you can find all episodes and detailed episode guides on our website, csimmigrant.org. Again, that's csimmigrant.org. And you can find us and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and basically wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is structured into acts or chapters. You'll find chapter markers on your audio player, and you can use these to jump between the acts or chapters. This is a remix episode. Punched card computers. The 1960s and 70s were prehistoric times for computer science. Next up is Moshe Vardi, professor at Rice, who grew up in Israel in the 1950s to 1980s and immigrated to the US in 1981 for a postdoc. He talks of his earliest memory of programming and computers. When the entire university celebrated the upgrading of memory of the mainframe and the president came to celebrate. Listen on. And I did go after that to the academic bookstore mm-hmm. and found another a, a manual of Algol W. Mm-hmm. And I knew Algol W back and forth without ever writing. I never wrote a program in Algol W. <laughs> but I read the manual cover to cover and I mastered Algol, Algol W at the time. But I never wrote a single program in Algol W. Yeah. So at that point, I was very clear that I, I want to study computer science. Mm. But the field was still, academ- academically, was very, very young. In fact, the, yeah. uh, the Barrel University did not have a major in computer science. Mm. They only had a minor in computer science. Mm. So I majored in physics and minor in computer science. And this is very early days of the computational era, late 1960s, early 1970s, like you so said. So I remember where they had a big event that uh, the, the president of the university came to drink champagne mm. when the mainframe was upgraded <laughs> into one, one megabyte. <laughs> one megabyte. <laughs> one megabyte was a, such a big event that the whole leadership of the university came to celebrate Everesti's milestone. Mm. The mainframe now has one megabyte of memory. <laughs> one megabyte is unimaginable today. Um, one yeah, megabyte of yeah. memory. And the mainframe had one megabyte of memory. <laughs> and that was an event, not that the, the sysadmins were celebrating. It was a university, I said, the leadership of the university came to celebrate this one megabyte event. What was the first computer that you used? I think the first computer I used was the one in Tel Aviv University during this uh, two-week course, and I think it was CDC, yeah, maybe CDC six thousand. Yeah, and this was Fortran programming, right? Fortran programming on punch cards, you know, just uh, it's medieval, medieval period in computing. Tell us a little bit about the, your experience with punch cards programming. So I'll tell you. I'll jump ahead a little bit to tell yeah. you about punch cards. Yeah. So. Remember that after 
after in 1971, I go to my, do my military service. Yeah. And then I, I, I go back to, um, let's see, I serve. Uh, when do I go back to college? I go back to, I go back to graduate school in 1976. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, to do a master degree in computer science. Right. And we had the project to do. So I go to look for what I was familiar with, a key punch machine. I wrote, first, first of all, I wrote my program on, a, on a, nobody, whoever writes their program on a sheet of paper. First of all, you write your program, right. and then you go to, to, to key punch it. And I said, well, the key, I mean, finally, in, in, a, in a dark, a dead-end hallway, dark hallway, I found a, a, a dusty key punch machine. I said, okay, I found one, and I sit down, and I start punching the cards. And somebody walks by and says, what are you doing? I said, I'm punching the cards for my, for my, for my project. And he says, punch card. Nobody uses punch cards anymore. <laughs> so I said, how do you enter your job? You use a terminal. Really? What is a terminal? So this, this, uh, this gap that I had between, uh, between when I took the first programming course, which was 1970, and just a few years later, the world has changed. The microcomputer was introduced. Yeah. NP computers was introduced, so big theoretical revolution and big practical revolution. So I did not yet see a, a, a microprocessors at all, but but there were terminals. Now, now if you wanted to submit a, a, a job, you you had a terminal, and that's how you submit your job. So I had to learn how to use terminals. So somebody saw me p- trying to punch cards, and it was as if I doing my project with a hammer and a chisel today. You know, imagine you see someone using a hammer and a chisel to write a, a project, to write a, a, a writing assignment. And this happened in just a space of a few years. Very sure. But this year, I think we really, people don't realize, the 70s was a big of, in, the, in theory, there was a huge change, an introduction of NP completeness. Uh, the, the, the paper was 1971. In fact, we just celebrated 50 years to yeah. Cook's paper. Yeah. And, and Gary and Johnson was 1979, kind of became the, the, the Bible that we all read. I read it cover to cover in a, when I was in a, in a, with a PhD student. So you changes, microprocessor was invented in the 1970s. So 70s were a big period of big, 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 big changes. And in the background, we, we don't know also, the, the, the internet was developed. Okay, internet was first 1969. So again, the major development of the internet happened also in the 1970s. We next talk to Rico Malvar, distinguished engineer at Microsoft and former director of Microsoft Research Labs, and also member of the National Academy of Engineering and an IEEE fellow. Rico grew up in Brazil. He did his BS at Universidade de Brasilia from 1974 to 77, and then his MSc at the Universidade Federal do Rio de Janeiro from 1978 to 79. He talks about, among other things, using punched card computers. 
When in your life did you encounter your first uh, computing machine or computer? I was already in college. It was my second year of college. It's the first time I took one of those um, scholarships for students for research purposes. So the universities always have this. It was one of those undergraduate research opportunities. Um, and I applied for and I got it. And I remember uh, with Professor Carlos de Moura, who was a professor in the mathematics department, more on applied math. And I talking to him and say, oh, Rico, we can use the computer here. And I say, aha, computers, that sounds good. Because math plus stuff that you build and work. So I'm not going to build a computer, but I'm going to get to play with the computer. So it was great because then I got introduced to numerical math. Uh, applied calculus and he was a great advisor. I still am in touch with him to this date. Just the other day, he's been retired a long time ago, but it's it's nice to see that, you know, after all these years, 50 plus years, we're still in touch. And that's how I got introduced. And the funny thing is that the computer, remember, we're talking 1975 in Brazil, third world country. Um, and the computer was an IBM 1130 that we programmed by punched cards in Fortran. Punched it cards, yes. Most of our listeners haven't uh, seen one, let alone use one. Tell us more. In fact, I was not even entitled to, to type on the machine. I had to write carefully in coding sheets, send those sheets to the people who would then type on the, on the machines. So I was not able to actually type. They didn't have enough terminals for the students to type. So they have professional typists and we would have to write by hand our code. So there were only certain people who were certified to type and essentially create the punch cards. Exactly, yeah. How long did it typically take for computation to finish once you submitted the punch cards? Oh, it was typically like, that's a good question. We would submit it and then they would say, yeah, come back tomorrow, maybe in two days. And your tiny little program will be ready a couple of days from today, which was completely crazy. But, you know, that's how we started uh, 50 years ago. The output of the program would also be on punch cards? Typically, the output would be printed. They would prefer, they would say, don't, don't, don't write programs that generate more punch cards. Just, just do printouts. And then again, we, we would have to go to a, to a room and ask somebody, do you have a printout for me? And then uh, that's how we knew if the program, and every now and then the program did, did not run correctly. And they say, oh, you got the printout. Oh, there's a bug. Two more days <laughs> to run it again. So the, the productivity was very low. Finding bugs in programs must have been really, really hard back then. <laughs> it was, it was. What uh, stage in your career did you stop using punch cards and move to the new kinds of computers? That was 75. Then two years later, uh, I was graduating. And then um, 79, a few years later, I was after my master's. I was uh, the master's was mostly theoretical. But uh, but then I was back to being more practical. But at that time, we had terminals. So the university, so now I'm talking 1979. We had a new computer, the Burroughs computer, which was much better than the, than the tiny IBM. Uh, and it had terminals. So we started programming with terminals with a very simple operating system, 
much simpler than the Linux of today, but it's good enough that we start thinking about files and typing and things. So then it became easier. So just in a few years. It just in a few years, I, I, will, I, I move back to the more normal, go to the terminal and do your program there and see the results instantly. So it's uh, 1974 and uh, you go to the Universidade de Brasilia for your uh, BS and then uh, two more years after that at Universidade Federal do Rio de Janeiro for your uh, MS. Uh, and then right after that, uh, you became a professor. I'll ask you a little bit about that. Uh, you also okay. mentioned that you, you, you essentially went to your local university because the tuition was, uh, was, uh, was, was free for, uh, right. for, for the locals. <laughs> Um, tell us a bit about your bachelor's program uh, in electrical engineering. Um, at what point of time do you think, you already mentioned earlier that research was something that uh, was ingrained in you by your math teacher. At what point of time do you think this thing called research uh, is potentially interesting and something that I might want to do? It's a good one. And it was really about uh, college. And as I mentioned to you, when I took that undergraduate research opportunity doing numerical calculus and things, and then both my advisor and me said, well, you know, we do like to explore things. And then he told me a little bit more about what is research. See, people do research, they go beyond, they study things, they invent things, they write papers about those things. And then he would actually carefully select a few papers that even I, midway through college, would be able to read and understand to some. See, this is kind of what a researcher does. You could do well on that. And I, I had some mixed feelings because I, I felt I would be more building things as a true engineer in the real world. But being a researcher was also cool. And I figure, uh, and then he would tell me, you can be both. Why don't you study enough, go through grad school, become a researcher, and then try to apply that in the real world? Because then you can maybe do more advanced things. And I said, okay, that's a good thing. So at that time, the more I spoke to him, the more I built the idea I think I want to go to grad school. And then my parents, of course, said, but of course you want to go to grad school, so <laughs> go for that. So it, it was like that. So by the time I finished college, I, it was pretty certain, okay, as long as I find the opportunity and I qualify for, I'm going to go for grad school. And that's why I went to Rio, because they had a very good master's program. And that, especially at that time in Brazil, people would really first do the master's and then think if they want to do a PhD or not. Very rarely somebody would go in already to do a PhD and get the master's along the way. It was more like, I'm going to a master's program. And that's another story if I want to do. So I took a step at a time and I did the master's first. Then I came back to Brasilia, started teaching a little bit, applied for a scholarship to come to the US to do the PhD and, and that's how it happened. So I did. Masters worked a little bit as a as a entry level professor for three years, and that's when I took off to to do my PhD. Was there a PhD program in Brazilian universities back then? Yeah, actually, there was, and that at the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro, not that great. It's a lot better now. Uh, they were in the early days of putting together a PhD program. So my master advisor, with whom I have kept in touch as well. He always said, look, you can get a great master's program here. We have a good program. We're good professors, but 
if you want a PhD in signal processing, you're going to have to go to the US or Europe. You, you need to leave because we don't have programs at, at, at the right quality. So he also advised me well. And it was common for universities to hire faculty with uh, a master's uh, degree? Uh, today, no. Today is just like here. You, your PhD is a requirement. But at that time, because there weren't that many people with PhDs, they would say, look, we will hire you at the assistant uh, professor level, not on a tenure track, right? So you're not counting years for, for tenure, but you can, you can already be here in the faculty and start learning to be a professor and all of that. But then within a certain period of time, you have to start a PhD program. If you don't start, you're out. On the other hand, if you do start in a good school, you get a leave of absence to go get your PhD, come back, and then you come back on a tenure track position. And that's roughly the path I took. It sounds like it's a stepping stone by the universities to encourage young aspiring researchers to get a PhD. Exactly, exactly. And the equivalent of NSF in Brazil, the CNPq, they actually created, at that time, it was actually quite big program of scholarships to pick up the best young folks in, in Brazil and, and give them the scholarship so they could go to places like MIT and other places. Um, so, and in fact, when I went to MIT, I had a whole set of colleagues from Brazil. There were like 20 of us or something like that. So uh, somewhat along those lines, I want to ask, so from your batch, the BS uh, students batch, Bachelor of Sciences class in electrical engineering, what fraction of them would you say went to graduate school and what fraction of them did other uh, things in their professional career? Well, it turns out that employment opportunities in Brazil were quite limited at that time. Today is much better because, you know, the world is flat and there's less difference among countries these days. But at that time, it was difficult. So the percentage of folks who actually continue with an engineering career was only maybe 20%. Other people would say, okay, I have an engineering degree, but there is a job here in the government being an accountant. I'm going to take that. I'm going to take some accounting courses. I'm going to take that because that pays well. And I couldn't find a job as an engineer. Or, and I would say a small percentage, maybe 5%, I'm not sure, but probably not much more than that, like me, when often continue their studies on grad school roughly speaking. Today, the percentages are a little better because we have the programs there. There's a much more vibrant industry to, to absorb the people and so forth. So back then, many studied engineering because they were interested in it. However, there was not really a job market for Not really a, a path to, to, to be an engineer, really a professional engineer. So they did something else. So if you went to your local office, you know, the accountant or whoever is running the office there, you might uh, meet them and they might actually turn out to be an engineer, very well-trained. Exactly. And that, that was actually quite common as, as much as almost half the class. The next voice is Tal Rabin, head of research at Algorand Foundation and professor at UPenn. Tal grew up in Israel starting from the 1960s and immigrated to the U.S. in 1994 for her postdoctoral studies. Tal describes getting email earlier than most of the rest of the world because her dad was a computer science professor. Email was so rare in those days in the 1980s that it was monitored. Listen on. And a little tidbit is that I have had email since 1983 
because we realized that this email existed and my father was half a year away at Harvard teaching. So we thought that this would be a very convenient way for communicating. That we understood. And the phone calls were really expensive, like a few dollars per minute. So I got email. Sort of the university agreed to give me the email so that I could communicate with my father on matters of urgency. Mm -hmm. One day, I'm called by the head of the department, and he says to me, I've been monitoring your emails, and I see that you are also writing personal emails to your father. This should stop. (laughs) Think about it now. If somebody would come and say this to you, I mean, you'd flip. And, and it seemed like a normal thing that he was looking at my email and the thought that you need to conserve on the emails because it's only for really important things. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 I guess there's two aspects there. One is that someone is actually reading and monitoring your emails. And then the second is, well, you know, we need to save some bytes while you're, by not sending personal emails. Exactly. <laughs> Such it's a different... phenomenal. Nobody would think about it today. Such a different time in computing back then. Yes. Uh, what was the first programming language you ever programmed in? Oh, it must be Pascal. And that I was in college, was... that was in university too? Yes, yes, in my introduction to computer science. This was my, as I said, first uh, encounter with things, and I think it was taught in Pascal. Computer scientists are often prone to thinking while sitting in front of a monitor. I'm sure you've done it a lot of times. However, both Moshe Vardi earlier and now Tal Rabin, up next, talk about the importance of doing computer science with a pen and paper. What was your creative process back then and what is your creative process now if it has changed? You know, how do you think about a problem? Do you like to think about it in the back of your mind as you're doing other things? Some people do that. Others just sit down and you know, just work on it for, for an hour or so. How is your creative process? So I don't know much about it, but I know that I need to be holding a pen and have a paper. Sometimes I never write anything, and sometimes I'll write like one word or two. But I do um, sit and focus. I sit and think about it, or lie in bed and think about it, but it's concerted thinking. I'm I'm focusing on the problem. But definitely sometimes I suddenly I'm walking on the street and suddenly I think, oh, here's a point. So it's it's really a combination of these things. Hmm. And of course, I work with people. Not on my um, uh, on that first problem. Then I worked mostly alone. And I spoke to Michael from time to time. But today, of course, I collaborate more. Yeah. And almost exclusively, most papers are with others. And so we also work together and talk. If you liked this episode, then you can also listen to the full interviews with each of these amazing technologists. Each interview features the origin story of the technologist, their educational path, their decision and thoughts on immigration, obstacles they faced along the way, and a discussion on their retrospectives and perspectives. As usual, you can find all episodes and detailed episode guides on our website, csimmigrant.org. Again, that's csimmigrant.org. And you can find us 
and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and basically wherever you get your podcasts. All the music used in episodes of the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast is royalty-free. All voice recordings were performed with and are reproduced with full consent of narrators and participants. You can find music credits on our website. Join the online discussion about this podcast on all major social media, including Twitter and Facebook, with the handle CSImmigrant and hashtag CSImmigrant. And of course, the episode guide is available at our website, csimmigrant.org. This is the Immigrant Computer Scientists Podcast.